Fargo, Season 2, Episode 2, Before the Law is Over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and let's shove these two co-hosts into the meat grinder and see what we get. Antonio Mazzaro and Jeremiah Panhorse. What's going on, my friends? Not much, man. What's going on? Josh, I have a question for you. Which is that what it sounds like when you get thrown into a meat grinder? It sounds exactly like that. There's like a little bit of a Mario quality to that. Little bit. It's like when Mario like goes into like dire dire docks. It's like <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, question for you, Josh. Shoot, what's up? Which one of us is the pincher claw and which is the crusher claw? Ah, oh, that's a great Ooh. question. That's a great question. I would say that Jeremiah crushes this thing on the regular, and Antonio, you've been known to pinch <laughs> me from time to time. Yeah, but well, because you say pinch me, I'm dreaming. So yeah, well, that's not exactly why you pinch me. But if we want to say it like that for the sake of podcasting, that's good enough for me. Uh, All right, everybody. yeah. Listen, whatever you guys do when you guys are together, that's between the two of you. Yeah. Okay, so let's keep that off the air. <laughs> keeping that stuff off the air. Let's let's focus on stuff that we're going to talk about on the air. It's Fargo season two, episode two. We are two episodes deep into this ten episode second season, having a good time with Fargo. What did we think of this episode, boys? Antonio, I'll start with you. I liked it better than the first one, and I liked the first one a lot. But the first one didn't have nearly. I, I mean, the, the shootout at the diner was great. But the, the two scenes in this episode, the roadblock scene and the Chekhov's digits scene, the fingers, the finger underneath the, uh, the whatever that was, that those two scenes, phenomenal and yeah. way better than anything, I think, in the first great episode. Uh, there aren't too many TV shows putting up scenes like that that are that taut uh, and full of tension and, and really just kind of edge of your seat stuff. Gotta love those Culkin fingers. Jeremiah, I'm sure you were a fan. <laughs> oh, huge fan. Absolutely. I, I hate whenever I lose my fingers like that. It's just terrible. How do you get them back on? <laughs> do you? Well, you, you put it in ice uh-huh. right away, and you have to rush, it, rush yourself right to the hospital. Uh-huh. And then maybe, if you're lucky, you might be able to get them back on. How I many mean, times <laughs> has this happened for you? Just a few. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got ten fingers. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, Absolutely. you know, you can do this a couple times the wrong way before you figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You never noticed when we met that I was missing some fingers, Josh? No, I didn't. I wasn't paying attention, oh, to be honest. That's a shock. Staring deep into your eyes at the, at the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the finger scene was crazy. The the stop with Ted Danson versus uh, Bokeem Woodside, I believe is the name of the actor. Woodbine. Woodbine. Yeah, Woodbine, it, was, it, yeah. Was, it was terrific. That was a really great scene. Yeah, I, I agree with everything Antonio said. This is one of those crucial episodes where they're going to just continue to build this tension for all these different things. We know eventually all these characters, all these plots are going to all come together, especially once they figure out what happened to Rye. So it, to me, this was just great because it just really builds up the excitement of what's really going to happen when everybody figures out what's going on. So I thought it was fantastic. And you're right. Those two scenes, holy cow. Even though I know the outcome about you know some of these characters – you know, from what we know about season one, right. I still was like going, oh, God, I hope, I hope he doesn't see that finger. You know, <laughs> like I was hoping, you know, I didn't want something bad to happen to uh, Lou, even though, you know, we know what happens to Lou. So <laughs> it was great. I, I really enjoyed the episode. You know, you talked you talk, Jeremiah just now about how, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on and we can feel them all intersecting at some point in the future. But is it too much for you right now? Is any of this too much to track at one time? Or do you think that this is the right number of stories for a season of Fargo this early on? No, I think you can make a fair argument there might be even uh, this might be even more compact than the first season i think that uh to you know to us as the viewers i think it's i don't think it's really too much at all to keep track with at least myself i'm doing 
doing okay. What about you guys? Are you guys having troubles keeping everything in in order? I mean, as long as they're split screens, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Like, as long as they can tell me two stories at once constantly throughout the episode, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the split screen stuff. Do you guys, so what do you guys feel now that we've seen it? It's obviously they're keeping it. Is this more just a stylist, stylist decision they made to kind of give us that 70s television feel? Because I know that was kind of a big thing there for a while where they would do that a lot. And especially like I think in a lot of those cop shows and stuff, I think I remember seeing it. Do you think that's what it is? This is a style choice yeah. for fun? Or do uh, yeah. you think it's a plot device to help? tell the story like Antonio was saying. I think it's, I think it could be a little bit of both. I think it's a really cool stylistic touch, and I think that it sets it a little bit more in the 70s time period than we were getting with the original Fargo season. Um, and I also like that it it gets us, you know, to, to learn more about these characters with, you know, you know, kind of consolidating time, you know, seeing Peg and Ed both dealing with their own varying degrees of bullshit that they're wading through right now and getting to, like, <laughs> kind of go deep into their psyches in these two split screen scenes. I thought that that was great. I think that it's a really nice way of conserving time, really taking advantage of the runtime and the screen time at the same time. Yeah, I get it. I get a feeling though Antonio may not be a fan. Are you are you okay with this Antonio? Uh, or what? The use on the show so far has been hit and miss for me. I think when it's okay. When it's style for style's sake, I'm I'm a little bit uh less taken with it. But I mean, for mm-hmm. example, there was a pretty great uh use of it I think in this episode with uh with Dodd Gerhardt where he's just kind of brooding in in one side of the split screen and the other you see the other characters kind of going out throughout their actions and it's and it's like I don't I, for for whatever reason that really worked for me because it it just it layered the emotion on top of each other the emotions I should say and I right. that really it was more bang for your buck there was another use of it where literally in the back seat of the car uh between Bokeem Woodbine uh and uh I forget the guy's name the other uh the guy from Kansas City the main oh Brad Garrett between the two of them in the back seat there was a split line and it was like literally in the same scene and then those lines split apart and then that's how we transitioned to the next scene that was cool okay, right. but it was really more style for style's sake and that to me is sort of detracts from the emotional weight of the story uh, and things like that. I, I'm better when the style leads and blends with the emotion, like the example uh, with with Dodd, than I am when it's just kind of there. Fair right. enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's let's dive into what's actually there on screen in this episode. A lot going on. Uh, we start with the Kansas City offer. Kansas City moving in on the Gerhards, which is where we left off in the premiere, and we get a little bit more of a look at what it's like at the Gerhardt compound. I guess you could just roll up there, and anytime you're there, you'll just see somebody in the barn getting their ears chopped off. That <laughs> seems like just like yeah. a standard a standard Tuesday in Fargo. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, ears, fingers, like uh, no, no appendages. Nothing that's somewhat loose is safe. It seems. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Keep, <laughs> what, what else keep, you got? Keep all your clothes on. Yes. Keep well, all your clothes on, unless you're un, unless you are Jesse Plemons, in which yeah. case, take them off and stand in front of that fire in your tidy whities all night long, baby. Is it too late to <laughs> to change the beefy Damon hashtag back to what we had originally? I, he's still beefy. That's beef. Still it's all beefy. beef, baby. Oh yeah, he's beefy. Yeah. It is great. I liked that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it gives I, me hope I seeing def- guys like me on TV. Yeah, it's nice, right? And finally, we're being represented. <laughs> it's right. There's no shaming here. No, absolutely not. We're on Team Clemens on that one for yep. sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think with this, I'm only thing I'm concerned. Now, you think this this Dodd character? Hopefully, he's smart enough to know that if you're telling a story, you, you might want to tell it to someone who has ears because that's really important. I think, don't you think? You would think so. 
<laughs> yeah, that's why pen and paper exists. I'm, I'm hoping yeah. in the spirit of Fargo, uh, which is especially season one where anything kind of really happened and characters came and went and people died pretty quickly sometimes. And we already saw that happen with Rye Gerhardt. I, I don't want a season of Dodd Gerhardt. I might be in the minority here. I'm not liking the character. I'm not liking a ton what Jeffrey Donovan is doing with that character. Uh, and I'm really not, uh, looking forward to a full season of him just being obstinate and dumb and, you know, screaming into deaf ears, literally. Like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not buying that so far. And I understand why he's oppositional, but it's ridiculous because in the first episode, that character tells Rye, his brother, like, you have to earn for the family, like everything, you know, you do whatever you follow Mm -hmm. the rules, basically be there at noon, do this, do that, be my errand boy. Then when his mother, his mother is literally asking him, to do the same thing for the good of the family in this episode, he stews over it and he broods and he wants to go to war against his own family. Get this guy off my show. Yeah, it's but annoying. Antonio, she's a woman. She oh. can't do that. Yeah, no, exactly. I, do, I have no room for this guy. I have no room for this guy. I'm, I'm team Careful bear. what you say, Jeremiah. She's going to change your diapers. <laughs> I'm <laughs> team bear. Right. I, like team, I like bear. Bear was drinking half and well, half right out of the carton. Here's the argument. Like I'll an Arnold Palmer? Yeah, no, just half, like heavy cream almost. Like half Oh, cream. a half and half heavy cream guy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you know if you add some vodka to Oliver Palmer, you get a John Daly? I do know that. I love the John Daly. <laughs> so, hey, here's a, here will help you a little, Antonio. Though the only thing I kind of I kind of see where you're talking about with uh, with this character, Dot. But what I like now, though, is knowing that there's uh, there's going to be tension and issues between him and his mother. I'm really looking forward to seeing who wins out on this thing because obviously i think she seems to be leaning towards taking the deal he obviously does not he wants to be in charge she wants to be in charge this could be really good a good moment here coming up soon and i i have a feeling she's gonna win by the way gene smart was fantastic i thought in this episode where she calmly sits him down has that conversation over the table with that delicious looking bread i guess it was they're eating i i thought she was great in that scene but you you see what i'm saying though antonio yeah yeah Yeah, gene Gene smart was great in that that holla uh holla back she ain't no holla back mom she's just (laughs) delivering stop it stop no that was uh that was great she's like you're gonna eat with me and so he rips off a piece of bread like that's not really there's symbolic value there of breaking bread together right and bread and salt and whatever but uh yeah other than that he he wasn't really sitting down and eating a meal i agree with what you're saying jeremiah about how this could all devolve and whatever it's funny because the Kansas City people, they seem to think, hey, we can play these people against each other. But I don't mm-hmm. think – I think they thought they could play the brothers off of one another. I don't really think they True. they thought they could sow the seeds of discontent the way that they have. I'm just, I'm just not a fan. I know that it's hard because we only had basically three or four lines uh, from Oto, from the patriarch of the family. Uh, and I feel mm-hmm. like Jeffrey Donovan Dodd is doing a little bit of a kind of sound-alike thing, but I'm just not loving that performance or character. I'm hoping there's a little more than the one dimension that we've seen so far, because uh, right now it seems very one-dimensional character and performance. I think that there was one thing that I, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying, and I don't disagree with most of it. There's, there was one moment in the performance that I thought was tremendous Tell on me. Jeffrey Donovan's part tonight, which is when he is, you know, being told to sit down at the table, have some bread, listen to your mother, basically is what Gene Smart, what Floyd Gerhardt is saying. He just has this look of incredulity on his face where he just, he does not want to sit here and be lectured by his mom. And it's, you know, it's that look on your face that everyone can relate 
relate to from when you were a kid, when you were being told by an authority figure, when you were being scolded and you just thought that you were better than this and you did not need to be told what to do. And I feel like it's a very relatable facial expression that he has mm-hmm. on his face, except as a yeah. much older man. But there's something sort of there was a very youthful childlike quality to his face as he's being scolded by her. And I thought that, you know, is a dialogue free moment on his part and i thought that that stuff was really really good he was really he was really proud of himself the look on his face when he decided he was going to sit in his dad's chair too exactly he was very proud of himself and i thought that was great i thought that that was really good and i think you know it's it's early days yet i'm not ready to say get jeffrey donovan off of my screen i'm sure that he will be taken off of our screen at some point in the future you just got to imagine given the show um but i i feel like there is there's stuff on the table other than challah bread that is worth consuming when it comes to this character i think that there are interesting dynamics at play between him and his mom this guy who obviously thinks that he is worthy of his father's throne right now um and seeing how that plays out could be really really interesting especially with a guy like bear in the middle so i think that the gerhardt dynamic is really complicated and rich and i think for it to be as complicated and rich as it is you kind of have to have that dingus who you just don't like that much and i think that for the drama i think it's good to have that character yeah, I just I don't know. Are we going to see an oppositional Kansas City? I mean, it seems like the the natural story would be let's all close up ranks, you know, circle up the wagons. We're going to take on all comers, and that's that. It seems like a very dumb, short sighted, the kind of thing that someone would do when they had somebody, you know, they wanted to listen to that they actually accidentally murdered. Uh, that's the sort of thing they would do. Is like, oh, rather than circle up our wagons and take on all comers, let's eat each other alive from the inside. Like that right. just doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. a good plan. And I know there's dumb criminals. And, and what have you. I just, I don't want to spend any time with Dodd thinking that he's in control or smart because I don't think either of those things are happening. And I, I don't know. I, I just hope he's not being positioned in terms of the script to be somebody that we need to take super seriously or think he's really in control of things. Because I think the first episode, we just kind of got a little bit of him being just kind of the, the older brother or whatever. This is the first episode where we see like an actual dead body right in his presence and one that he basically had killed uh, for his own sport or pleasure or whatever. So if he's going right. to be a monster, be a monster. Don't be this teenager who is a little is pouting and, you know, wants to take his ball and go home. I just we'll see how this plays out. I, I think there are better ways. Uh, for this character to take flight rather than just kind of be one dimensional. But you're right. There, there do need to be some family dynamics there. Uh, it just, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Jeremiah, Battle of the Gerhards, Floyd versus Dodd. Who's coming out on top? <laughs> give me, give me it's your take. It's not going to be Dodd. Plant it's your, not be plant Dodd. your flag. It's not going to be Dodd. It's got to be Floyd. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you Yeah. Mean? And I, I expect, actually, I'm expecting her to just have, uh, ooh, who would be the kills him though? But she's going to have one of them kill him. Maybe Bear. But, but Bear's on her side. Bear's team Floyd. Yeah, Bear's, no, Bear's going to have yeah, Bear's, Bear's going to kill Dodd for, for Floyd. She, she's going to ask Bear, hey, get get rid of it. Get rid of your brother. And I don't think yeah. Bear would have any problem with that because he would see himself no. as next in line. And then he would probably and, step up and be oppositional to Floyd. Yeah, so you, yeah, you think that this is, this is a good move on Bear's part is to sign off on his mom? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think more than anything, I think that she seems way more on top of it and in control than Dodd does. Uh, mm-hmm. He just seems to be sort of uh, impulsive and angry and kind of short-sighted. And 
I don't know. He didn't ask for any details about the deal other than when she said it might end up better for them in the long run. He wanted to reject it right away. He just wanted to go to war. Uh, it's sort of this thing where uh, in The Godfather, you, you have a sunny Corleone, you have a hot-blooded kind of uh, sh- you know narrowly focused uh, tunnel vision type person. Not really fit to lead. Maybe fit to fight a war, but that's about it. Uh, Gene Smart was great, as Jeremiah said, and I think in that scene, I'm all, I'm all team, I'm all team Floyd for sure. Uh, and you got Bear; he just seems kind of like a dumb guy. I did think it was interesting in the first episode. There's a scene where uh, where Betsy uh, chides Lou for drinking milk straight out of the carton, and she says he Lou's like it tastes better, it tastes better, it tastes different than when it's right. in a glass. And in this episode, we see Bear drinking right out of a carton, but it's not milk. It's half and half. So it's kind of like a a nice contrast between those two characters. You don't drink half and half instead of milk unless you're pretty much just not caring about what's going on. Jeremiah, if you add vodka to a half and half, that's not a John Daly, but what is it? What do we call it? Oh, 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 that's a good one. Well, you want to go try that out? Oh, no, wait. I I know. A little bit of Kahlua. You got yourself a white Russian. Yeah, I know that. It's a Coen (laughs) Brothers class? Yeah. Caucasian. Yeah, I was going to say it's a Roger Sterling. A Roger Sterling? <laughs> That's a madman reference. There. Is that what Sorry. he drinks? Uh, well, he has been known to put vodka in his milk in one of the earlier seasons. I think it was like season one or two, where you see him putting his milk or putting vodka in his milk because his wife's on the phone going, You drinking your milk? He goes, Oh, yeah, honey, I'm drinking my milk. And he's, he's pouring vodka at the same time. Quiet. So, yeah, I think maybe, you know, I could see uh, Sterling maybe having having a little vodka with his uh, his creamer. There's um, a, uh, <laughs> I forget what it is, but I'm pretty sure there's a mixed drink that's either called a Marlon Brando or maybe called a Godfather. And I thought it was like scotch right. and milk, but I could be wrong. Oh, is it? Maybe it has something else. Hey, in it. I got a question about, before we move on with the Gerhardt family, one of the things I want to ask you guys, have you guys ever, when you were feeling ill for some reason, gotten a get well card with porn in it? Because I have not, and I'm really disappointed now that my family hasn't sent me porn for a get well card. Once again, things that are better <laughs> left off the air. Yeah, but so, it does really. Oh, I'm sorry. This, in this day and age, the e-card industry alone it really opens the door. <laughs> it oh, really yeah. does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. but it comes uh, up on your credit card info as like a different company. How do you do you know that for a fact? No, that's just what I've heard. I heard as well. Yeah, yeah. that's that's just what I've heard. Uh, but that's a great scene too, with all like the get well cards that are coming in for for Otto Gerhardt, and we see Charlie, uh, who's Bear's son. Did we like this character, Antonio? Did you like Charlie? I like Charlie, and I think that that's a kind of when you talk about sort of a, either a trope or like a like a short dimension this sort of he doesn't he seems like an he he's been given cerebral palsy as a as a writing thing so he clearly has is being perceived as as maybe more innocent or weak uh and drawing him into this war i think is going to have some some good payoff In and i have a, good payoff have, or or heartbreaking payoff. both i mean both yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but i mean it'll be great on screen for sure i have a few i think he's going to be one of the few that's going to make it out of this thing alive you feel good about charlie I do. I, I'm putting my money that uh, he he's one of the few that makes it out. I'm not saying he doesn't get convicted from something and goes to jail for a while, but I think he's going to survive. How about Simone? How about Dodd's daughter? Are are you guys more in on Dodd's daughter than on Dodd? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, sure. She's clearly more in the loop. Doesn't doesn't write Rye off, you know, and says, "Hey, Grandma would be good." Like she's ready to embrace that. She's all these people in the room, other than Dodd, seem to have their their wits about them a lot better than Dodd does. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, really, everybody is Team Floyd, except for Dodd, pretty yeah. much. Dodd in his that's right hand. Saying. Yeah, Dodd in his right hand man, his name is Hansy Dent. He is his enforcer. That guy is the one who's out looking for Rye right now. And Floyd is the one who says, you bring Rye to me. And Dodd leaves the room and says, you're with me, though, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm with Are you. you. Buying I, that? I, Are you buying that he's with him or that he said one thing to Floyd to her face and one thing to Dodd to his face and maybe he's kind of on his own or it's not clear where he's at just yet? I could see it going a couple of ways. I think that, you know, it would be, you know, if we want to build up this sort of civil war within the Gerhardt family, I think that you have to have some people who are going to be on Dodd's side. And he's a guy that we now see on screen him basically saying, yeah, I've got your back. So Mm -hmm. if you're just taking it on a straightforward level and you want to ride this storyline out deep into the season, I think that you need him to be backing Dodd. Personally, I think it would be very fun if everyone was anti-Dodd and he just got a great comeuppance in a few episodes. <laughs> yes. That would that'd be really terrific. I don't know if that's where we're going. I would prefer be. that to be the story, and I think there's a chance that it could be. And uh, that, It could. That, I think, yeah. is better because I do think that it at least now, still now is open-ended about what side Hansi Dent really is on. We don't know. He's kind of on this um, just this wild goose chase to find a body that is ground into meat. Um, so it's not going to end well for that, at least that particular part of the quest. Uh, and, and I guess it will remain to be seen whether we're going to pick sides or not. How about the Kansas City crew? Uh, we, we get a, a, our first extensive look at these guys. We got a little bit of Brad Garrett as Joe Bulo in uh, the at the end of the premiere. We get a little bit more of him in this episode. We get a lot of Mike Milligan. We get a lot of the Kitchen Twins. What did we think of these guys? This is a, this is a, I think Mike Milligan is an early front runner for best character of the season. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I was thinking what Antonio talked about last week that the great Dan Feinberg had mentioned that some of his favorite characters didn't even get to speak a word in the first uh, episode. It feels like he was I talking about this Mike. guy. Yeah. It's got to be uh, Milligan, right? Don't you think, Antonio? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's definitely one of them. Uh, I don't know where the rest of this is going to end up, but yeah, the Bookie Woodbine. Great actor, probably has not gotten his due to date. Uh, he's, right. he, I remember him kind of bursting onto the scene in the, I guess it would have been the early nineties. He had a run of movies, uh, and they were all sort of popular movies that, uh, were, were big at the time. Uh, and he had hit decent roles in them and showed up in, in a lot of, a lot of places uh, that, you know, that were dead presidents, Jason's lyric. I think he was in, uh, uh, the Rock, maybe I think he was in The Rock. Oh, he was in The Rock. Yeah, and and then I just I mm-hmm. remember him in The Rock. The only thing oh, yeah, I've really seen him in since is Southland. He had a nice role on Southland, which is a good kind of underrated show that bounced around uh, networks and different lengths of seasons over the years. But that was the one where Commissioner Gordon and Abraham Ford from The Walking Dead were buddy cops, right? You got it, uh, yeah. Ben McKenzie, and I forget is that Cudlets? Yeah, Michael Mikey Cud. Yeah, so that was uh, and Regina King was on that show. Great, great cast. Um, they kind of shrunk the cast after a certain point because their budget shrank. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think Bokeem Woodbine was uh, kind of a victim of that. Uh, and he wasn't on the last season. So, uh, But he's a very good actor, and I, I really like what he's doing here. There's a whole lot going on uh, in his delivery. It's not quite Lorne Malvo. Uh, it's not that kind of uh, sort of menace uh, in that way, but it is, there's menace there for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he has a... He demands on screen, he really demands uh, your attention, you know, which is great. And I, he's definitely, he, I think that he kind of fills that role that Melville did last season, but in a whole different way that's really exciting. And I agree, Woodbine is just nailing it. And what he's got some great lines in this episode, too. 
Yeah, I mean, just great stuff. Th- there's just he's you know he's the guy who's chewing on on dialogue the way that nobody else is yet on the yeah. show, other than maybe Nick Offerman as Carl Weathers in the first episode at, at, in that kind of John Goodman type of role. I feel like he's this this is the next character that is really just making a meal out of these words, and he has some great things he's saying like in in the big scene against Ted Danson when he's saying like oh isn't it a minor miracle that two men can stand on a lonely road in winter and talk calmly and rationally when all around then people are losing their minds. And he just has these great, great observations of the world that I do think, Antonio, are a little Malvo-esque. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't feel him as such like a, a force of nature the way that you would feel about Lorne Malvo. You know, this guy definitely feels more human right. than that guy. He doesn't feel like such a Terminator. Right. But, but there is just sort of, there's like this whimsy about him where he, the way that he looks at the world is obviously different from the way that other people on the show are looking at the world. Yeah. And I really like the end of his kind of interaction with Ted Danson. I, that scene was great. Uh, and we can kind of jump around because, you know, we're, we're this, I think more than anything, this episode was a collection of these big scenes or big moments. But um, Ted Danson in that scene, his eye acting was phenomenal. He's just kind of shifting from person to person. He's trying to keep a cool head because he's the mm-hmm. one who's supposed to be in charge of that scene. But you can tell that he's dying on the inside and freaking out a little bit. He's a little bit rattled by what's in front of him. And if you watch that scene again, his eye acting, really, really top notch. But the scene is just so elevated by the that speech that Bokeem Woodbine gives as they're getting back into the car. Like, you know, the fact that they, we both understand each other is crazy. And while everything around us is going nuts, like we're able to stand on this road in the winter and just talk. Uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is really good. It would, it reminded me a little bit of that, um, the great poem by Rudyard Kipling called If. I don't know if you guys know that poem. but in Recite that, it to us. Well, in that poem, I think the first two lines are, if you can keep your head about you, or if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. The, the whole point of the poem is, like, this is how you can really be uh, a, a truly elevated human being. Like, you can, and unfortunately for the sake of the poem, it's about being a man. But um, but truly, that that it's just kind of like, this is how you separate yourself from everyone else who's going nuts and who is caught up in the rat race and who gets focused on the wrong things. You just need to keep a clear head. You need to stay focused on what you're doing. I think that obviously as soon as that scene happened, I thought, well, Ted Danson could die right here. This is Fargo. Like characters can get shot or killed at a moment's notice. People that we like can be removed. That can easily happen. It happened in the first episode of season one where a, a major police chief was killed. Uh, and so here we go. Like, Ted yeah, they're Danson. definitely playing playing with the expectations from that scene specifically. I feel like yes, yes, yeah, yep. And we have a different we have a different kind of force in play here. And Bokeem Woodbine, I think, rightfully recognized, and Mr. Milligan recognizes that. You know what? I just play this cool. Show them our IDs, give them our names. Uh, not really go too crazy with this, and we'll be on our way. And he still gets to be in control because he. He doesn't get out of the car right away. He doesn't answer the questions that Ted Danson once asked or once answered. So he doesn't give Ted Danson everything he wants. Uh, and so he still wins the scene, but he doesn't have to win it by pulling weapons out and drawing down, even though clearly they could have done that, shot the guy and been done with it. And I think that it's the mark of a, of a you know, this is a Kansas City guy. Like these are the guys from a bigger city uh, and they're probably more used to these sorts of things. Lorne Malvo was this sort of feral predator gone amok. Like he was in the middle of a hit and he just went off and did something else. And I think that I like this character. Side quest. Like the distinction. A little side quest. Yeah, yeah. I like this distinction here. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you guys too if you felt like, oh my gosh, Hank's a goner. When, as soon as that scene begins – 
But I have to admit, though, you know, even though I kind of had a feeling because, you know, my, this character, Mike, is obviously a, a, he's a very intelligent person. I think he knew clearly, obviously, that the other officer had called ahead and had this set up to this this roadblock stop. So I think he knew that other players involved knew what, that this was happening. And I think he knew that he had to play it cool as possible because this could be, you know, it could be a big thing and you have to kind of try to cover up if, if things turn bad and he did play it smoothly. But even though I kind of knew that that in the back of my mind, like he probably isn't going to do anything because it'd be, be really rough for him to do it. But it's still, I was like going, Oh man, I was just so tense. Just thinking, Oh my gosh, he's going to get killed. He's going to get shot. He's going to get shot. He's going to get shot. Especially the part where he's asking to get out of the car and I'm going, Oh no, they're getting out of the car. This is not good. Yeah. This is just not good. Yeah, I mean, I think in the moment, you just don't know enough information about the yeah. guy as to whether or not he's just crazy enough to shoot a cop. But you don't just shoot a cop willy-nilly. You know, shooting yeah. a cop is a big, 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 big deal. Uh, right. But what if the yeah. cop's name is willy-nilly? Do you shoot him then? Ooh. I feel like this is familiar. This feels familiar to me. I don't think that this is willy-nilly's first appearance in Pocho Recaps. Does it feel familiar-nilly? Uh, I don't uh, want to do boy. that. I don't okay. want to go down that. Sorry. But I mean, it's, it's not something you do lightly. Like you have to be mm-hmm. operating on a certain set of rules or you have to have no rules. You just have to be sort of this, uh, little, you know, instinctual idiot. Somebody like Rye Gerhardt. I could feel, I could see him shooting oh, his way out of a scene like this. Um, but Mike Milligan is a guy who has words for weapons. And that's something that we now know that the scene is finished. Um, I think in the, in yeah. the scene, there is that tension for me. I, I get what you're saying, Antonio, that, you know, this is Fargo. Ted Danson could be killed in the second episode, but I kind of feel like Ted Danson can't be killed in the second episode. And maybe that's a great expectation for me to have of this show to get, you know, completely knocked on my feet at some point down the line. Like uh, it, it, even in the in the butcher shop scene coming up with Jesse Plemons and Lou Salverson and they're having their heated conversation. We know nothing is going to happen drastically to Lou because he is going to survive this thing. He's going to be in season one, but we don't know what could happen to Ed, but it just feels too early for that character to be taken out. So maybe that took a little tiny bit of the tension out of the scene for me in this one, especially with Ted Danson and Bokeem Woodbine. But I, I don't know. It was still, it was just a really well acted scene more than anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I have kind of almost no expectations about what happens here because we had, we had the first season of Fargo. Some major actors had smaller arcs uh, and we had some major actors have bigger arcs. And yeah, you're right. Like theoretically, uh, Ted Danson can't be taken out this early, but certainly that's the sort of thing you can do for shock value or to really right. shake the story into motion. And it could be an inciting incident. It could be the totally. sort of thing that, that oh, absolutely. reads the whole thing. So, I mean, I think that that's possible. You, you make a good point about the thing with Lou. I think that overall this, there's a very interesting thing going on with this season when you take it in conjunction with the first season. I'm curious what the two of you think about, uh, we were just talking about Mike Milligan. What about the Kitchen Brothers? Is that is that a little too close uh, to uh, the numbers and wrench kind of specifically number or wrench uh, not being able to speak. Uh, these guys are not talking. It's two not wrenches. Clear. It's two wrenches. Yeah. Yeah. And the kitchen sink. <laughs> it's two wrenches in the kitchen sink. So yeah. the question is like, I mean, is that is it too similar to the to this the setup from the first season? Or are you guys just totally on board? No problem. Yeah. Kev, kitchen sink or kitchen swim is the question. <laughs> Well, I I had this exact question. (laughs) I had this question for you guys, too, because I was wondering that as well. It does seem like it's almost they were trying really hard to bring back those two awesome characters that we all loved and kind of throw them in here with this with the Kitchen Brothers, hoping that that will be that 
feel that they give us that feel for those two characters again. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm okay, I'm okay with it. I mean, they 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 seem like it's going to be gr- the great. It's going to be great television anytime the three of these two are together on screen. Yeah, and I'm I'm okay with it. But I do agree. I do feel like they kind of are pushing it a little bit here and giving us that feeling yeah. uh, that we had. I don't. I don't mind. I mean, you got to have some enforcers on the show. I like it. I think that they're. I think that they're cool. And if it's, um, you know, it's the old or two heads are better than one, then three heads are better than two. And if you've got two wrenches in the Kitchen Twins, and you've got a numbers type in Mike Milligan, I like that dynamic. I think that that could be fun. I think that that's certainly the type of dynamic that we're striving for with these characters. You want somebody who is, you know, going to have a whole lot to say and is going to sound very dangerous when he says it, and is probably going to say some very funny stuff as well and then you want some guys who could just look like they could kill you with one look yeah um, I w- so so i like the dynamic i think it's good for a show like i that. will be interested to see the dynamic evolve uh i would like to see one of uh one of the kitchen brothers get killed and see the impact that it has on the other kitchen brother if we are going to have a mob war i think that that is something that could be called for we also don't know that these guys are affirmatively mute they just maybe choose not to speak so it would be interesting to see one of them kind of explode and talk or a uh, great scene. <laughs> I was going to say, what if, if one of them does die, would the other one talk? That's yeah, just, like, that's I'd like to see that see. play out. Like, I, I, I am curious with this dynamic. Uh, I think that I think that they'll probably play with their expectations, Josh, like you were saying uh, they're doing what they did with this scene. I think that, you know, knowing what we know about season one, I think they will play with their expectations a little bit. And these guys may evolve to be a little bit more than just kind of uh, guy standing in the background as muscle. There is that scene at the beginning of the episode where stupid jerk face Dodd flicks his cigarette or cigar at the table. That's how you really feel. Yeah, and then they just kind of like like just kind of <laughs> menace him, but they don't I mean they don't react. They keep their head about them while others are losing theirs. Uh, and I think that that bodes well for them uh, as characters. I think that it'll be really interesting to see what will set them off or what will ultimately uh, lead to them being violent because I want to see them do more than just stand around for sure. Yeah, jerk store. Going with jerk store. Yeah, that's where we're going with the jerk store. Called, they're that, all at a dod. It's out of season. That's right. They're all at dod. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do see what you're you're coming come saying there, Antonio. I really do understand what you're saying. What I think, though, also in fairness to the characters, I mean, if you think about it, I always kind of look at guys, henchmen like this, who are there basically to kind of protect their main guy. I always kind of feel like that's their role anyway, is to say very little and just do what they're told. But uh, I, I hope we get to see more out of them for sure. But I think we will. I think we will. Um, yeah. wh- wh- why did Lou know to send uh, Hank after Mike Milliken? I mean, was it just an instinct? Was it like casual racism? What was that all about? How did he know? Go after that <laughs> casual car? racism. Yeah, I no, mean, I, I after that car. Casual racism is clearly could have played a part. I think that it. Sure. If I'm not mistaken, the car had out of state plates. Uh, there, you know, he recognized that it wasn't. He he also it's a small town in a small area. Probably knows most of the people there. Sees three nicely dressed guys in a car like that, and it's like, hmm, those are outsiders. Why are they kind of scoping out a murder scene? Like, what's going on here? Uh, I'd like mm-hmm. to talk to those guys, and if I can't, I'm gonna. I'm I'm going to put somebody else in harm's way. Clearly, he didn't think it would end poorly. He's not trying to kill his father-in-law, is he? Or is he? Maybe he is. I mean, I <laughs> yeah. thought about that. Like, is he doing that on purpose? But no, I think he trusts his his father-in-law and his, and his instincts and his policing skills unequivocally. And so he thought, those are guys that I kind of want to want to talk to and figure out what's up. And clearly, I can't because I've got my family here with me, but somebody should. 
Sure. And Antonio. I mean, we also know that, um, you know, both Ted Danson and Patrick Wilson's characters, they're not, you know, superheroes by any stretch of the imagination, but they've seen their share of shit. We yeah. get a really yeah. great scene between the two yes. of them near near the end of the episode when they're talking about their war stories. Uh, when we're talking about Lou Salverson in Vietnam and the guy with the cigar who got shot through the cigar, his breakfast cigar. Uh, and we get Ted Danson talking about finding the German captain who had hanged himself and and how instances in their life back home have reminded them of those moments from the war. What did you guys think of, of that scene? I think that that's something that really places this season of Fargo in a really specific point in time in a way that maybe we didn't get quite as much in season one, that this is about characters who are really, really close to wartime, their, their own separate wars and bringing that stuff back home, I thought was really terrific. Yeah, I thought so too because it really built out the emotion between the two of these characters. You could tell that they they have a lot of, they definitely have a lot in common obviously and you could tell that they have a really deep meaningful relationship together and they really mean a lot to each other. So I thought it was just beautifully done and uh, I really really did enjoy it. What about you Antonio? Yeah, I I mean I that was that was one of the best scenes of the show in, in a in a show that had two really bang up scenes. That was a that was right up there with them and for totally different reasons and I I do think the writing elevates it. Josh, I think you're right that it situates the show in a time or a place more so than uh you know stylistic choice with a font of a true story or uh more so than the music in some respects. It really does so in a way, I, I, Ted Danson's observation about how I think you guys brought this stuff back with you uh, is right, great. That was really haunting. Yeah, because uh, there's no doubt that that is true. Like a lot of people brought a lot of darkness back with them uh, from that war, and there were yeah. because there were a lot of people that just weren't ready for the situations that they got thrown into, and uh, that saw some really really horrible stuff happen, and kind of had to deal with that. And they did bring it back with them. There's no doubt. There's a great song by John Prine, who's one of my favorite. Favorite, uh, musicians called Sam Stone, and it's uh, it's really about that very same concept. And if you look at the lyrics of that song, you should Google it um, because it's just it's and listen to the song because it it really is about these kind of people that came back from Vietnam and weren't necessarily prepared. I don't necessarily see that with Patrick Wilson. I feel like he's adjusted really well. Um, he seems to be a little hardened. His eyes. He's doing a lot of acting with his eyes as well, and his his eyes are really kind of. I love that you're just on fierce. the eye acting beat. He, he loves on eyes. Josh. I'm a big eye loves guy. I, yeah, I <laughs> I Antonio. Like it's happening, but uh, no. But he's really doing doing a lot of good kind of piercing work, and he's car- he's carrying around a lot, and of course he's carrying around his wife uh, possibly dying of cancer, certainly uh, in a bad spot. And Ted Danson's always kind of prodding him about that, like, oh, do you want to talk about your feelings? Like I'm giving you a chance here, like whatever, whatever. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I really I thought that scene was fantastic, and I I like the I like that it kind of places the show, like you said, in a in a way that we can evaluate other things that are happening in, in a cultural way, not just within the context of the story. Now I do have one thing before we close on this, though. This is what little concerns me is I I feel like the more and more we find out how important these two relationship is, the more and more I'm getting very concerned though, that Hank, the Hank is not going to make it out of this thing alive because we all know that this whole incident that happens uh, in this season is the, is the reason why that Lou decides to quit the force. And I just get this bad feeling that it's more than just a terrible incident happens. I have a feeling that he loses a lot from this. And I feel like that, the loss of Hank might be that one thing that just sets him over the edge to make him say, you know what? 
I'm out. Think if Betsy and Hank both die in the context of this season. Uh, what What about poor Molly? Like, what What, what does that tell uh, us about poor Molly? have to think about that? I don't want to be that depressed right now <laughs> yes. at like 8, 17 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Think about both of those things, Josh, and whenever your first pet died. No, stop. Oh, my God. <laughs> Man, Antonio, you're such a sinister person. Oh, that was a really terrible day. Thank you. <laughs> I just twisted my mustache. Unbelievable. Now go oh, listen he really to that. is the Yellow King. Now go yeah, listen. he really is. Now go Next time I that. see you, I'm going to twist your mustache. Yeah, baby. Now go listen to that song Sam, Sam Stone I'm, I was talking about. And I don't know about you, Josh, but next time I'm with Antonio in person, I'm wearing sunglasses so he can't look at my eyes. Yeah, yeah stay away <laughs> from my eyes. Unbelievable. What a dark thing that you just said. That's incredible. Yeah, it would be awful. I mean, the is the short version yeah that'd be awful that'd yeah, be terrible terrible um and you know fargo i actually do think maybe this is a weird thing to say but i think that season one of fargo bared out in a way that the that the movie did mm-hmm. on almost kind of an optimistic note like i want to say that fargo ultimately isn't a mean-spirited show i think that fargo ultimately is a show that's true to life I think that when, a, when you know, a good man walks into a room surrounded by a bunch of very bad men, the real outcome very likely very often is that good man doesn't walk out alive. And I don't think that that is a, a good-natured thing or a mean-spirited thing. I think it's, the, it's just the law of the land. And I think that those are, the, those are the rules that a show like Fargo operates on. For me, it would feel really mean-spirited to have both Hank die and Betsy die this season. That feels just too far, and I don't think that that's in the spirit of the show. I don't see it happening, but it could. It too, could happen. Too dark is what you're saying. You too guys, dark. Yeah, you guys are saying we were dark. At least none of us took Betsy in the death draft. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. That well, that would have been worked. too. That would have been too easy. Yeah, too easy. Yeah, that's, that's good. So, I mean, but if we assume that that's going to happen, then I got to think that. What we're saying is that we think that Hank will make it because, as you're saying, Josh, the show is not mean-spirited and is not going to be that dark. But I don't know, man. I'm kind of with Jeremiah that I'm getting the simmering feeling that if this is what causes Lou to quit the force – and I think think that part of that is Lou's going to take a bullet at some point – then I I don't know what happens with Hank. Like I don't know if he makes it through or not. No, it's Mm -hmm. it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. we're trying to prepare you, Josh, just in case. Okay? I just love Ted Danson. We care about you, man. I don't want anything bad to happen to Ted Danson. <laughs> well, who does? Who does, well, right? Will they name a sandwich after him <laughs> if he dies? Josh, I got news for you. Becker already happened. <laughs> <laughs> no! Becker was my grandfather's favorite show for like two years. And then okay. for whatever what reason... What happened after two years? Yeah, for whatever reason, he just hated... <laughs> He didn't want any more of Becker. Like what he was watched, the season that turned him down? No, he was watching it like in in like in a syndication. So it's like I think maybe he just saw every episode and he was like, "That's it. That's all Becker has for me." Oh, you know that makes sense. Yeah, maybe it's like oh, classic man. getting let down by your by your hero. Yeah, maybe. Hey, maybe at the end of Becker, they kill Becker. I don't know. How does Becker end? Oh, I don't know. I know. No, I don't know. I've never seen Becker. I'm still catching up on Alf. <laughs> That's true. He still has to catch up on Alf. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still Alf kills that. Dumbledore, Josh. Yeah. No, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> spoilers. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Betsy Salverson, did you like this scene at the Waffle Hut where she finds the gun and Molly's like, look, look what mom found. And dad, her dad is like, yeah, mom's doing your dad's job again. I just like that little touch that, you know, everyone in this family, there's, there is, I said that they're not superheroes before, but they're like superheroes on like a normal level, if you know what I mean. Like they're yeah. just very heroic and com- competent and capable in their lives. I like that. I think that's a good touch. Everyday heroes. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. That, yep. Do you guys link that? And, and I agree. And I think that that, that Patrick Wilson saying kind of mom doing dad's job again. I think that that's a nod to what Jeremiah was talking about last week, where clearly Betsy has that whatever Molly's skills are as a police officer aren't just inherited from Hank and Lou. That Betsy, her, her deduction skills or her brain is always working too. She's always kind of involved in the work. The case is asking about it. So she's doing a great job. She knew about the fingerprint. She felt bad. What do you guys make of this balloon? Is there any possibility that the balloon somehow was related to the UFO? Oh, is that the UFO? Was the balloon? That maybe there was more than one. I mean, I've seen speculation online about this in a lot of different areas. I, I don't know. I don't lend too much credence to it. A lot of times when you hear about a UFO incident, they always say, oh, it was the light shining off a weather balloon or whatever. Uh, I don't really think that that's what was going on there, but uh, I guess it bears mentioning in some respect. Well, if it is, it said get well soon on it, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. It's, a, it's a message from the heavens. Like, we're, we're not ready to take it yet, Betsy. Yeah, maybe. Get That's better. a good point. Oh, I better. didn't think about That's that. That's so sweet. That's sad. Get better. Yeah. But, what, what do you, Jeremiah, you sent Josh and I an article um, about the kind of UFO connection. I don't know, Josh or Jeremiah, if you want to talk about that at all, but uh, I think it kind of links to the scene a little bit and, and maybe just the, the show overall. Yeah, there's a great article from The Week by Scott Meslow uh, citing the connection between UFOs and some Coen Brother movies, uh, which is, I, I believe, it's The Man Who Wasn't There, which is a, a BBT, a Billy Bob Thornton yep. joint. That's a good yeah. one. Jeremiah, what were some of the big takeaways from this? Well, it, it sounds like that the basically what they're trying to say is that in the, I get, and I've not seen that movie as well, but the overall big come away with this that the comparison between that particular movie and this one is is that more that the aliens are there just kind of watching uh watching over us right and almost like an in judgment or something and it may be that that is kind of the premise of this whole alien part of what we're getting because we we you know we get it again in this particular episode which we had that t- very kind of spacey voiceover track there with the jeff wayne uh, quoting from the 1978 musical adaptation of the great hg wells the war of the worlds and so we get we're getting a lot of this and of course in the first episode with the mysterious lights so the question is is where where what does this exactly whole ufo part have to even do with the story and the question is does it in invoke this theory about you know that there is there is a something whether it's ufo or whatever that's looking over us as we make these decisions in our life i kind of i kind of felt like that's what they were trying to say i don't know if you guys read it and got a little bit more out of it but i kind of one would like to hear what you guys think about this actually because you know it's definitely they're definitely putting it in there and if i remember right noah said that he did he said it is in there intentional the stuff with the ufo stuff isn't there intentional and it has some kind of bearing or meaning to the the story and the question now is well what exactly is that going to mean so what do you guys think yeah, I don't, I mean, I really have a very difficult time buying into aliens on Fargo. I mean, it's not where yeah. we're going. It's not where no, we're going. I, I certainly don't think we're going to end with someone, you know, going on a spaceship or anything. I mean, that would be spectacular, but it's not happening. I really, I really don't see that happening. But I think that in this article, there's a really cool note about how um, uh, it's this. This is the final paragraph of this article that Jeremiah sent our way. We'll include it in the show notes. It says the Fargo universe hinges on the same kind of cosmic morality that makes up the backbone of the man who wasn't there. Last week's premiere invoked the Old Testament intractability of God in the Book of Job. This week invokes the icy scrutiny of all-seeing and unknowable beings from another world, in whichever you place 
more stock in. The end result is the same. Someone above is watching and judging. No one who acts out can escape the consequences. I really like that read on why the UFO is here, why there was the big biblical talk in the premiere yeah. as well. Just this idea of you can do horrible, horrible things, but something's coming for you, uh, or yeah. at least someone's watching. Yep, I totally agree. Yeah, I think that I, last paragraph nails it. I think that that's an interesting kind of uh, that also plays. It doesn't. It's not really mentioned in the article, but a serious man, uh, which is something we've talked about on this podcast as well as the leftovers podcast uh, here on post show recaps, and that is another Coen Brothers movie that has a very similar kind of moral. It's kind of like some all knowing uh, figure is watching, and when you feel like you're making these petty choices in the day-to-day that don't actually matter, uh, even if they're moral choices. Uh, maybe they do matter. And that that's kind of the great kind of overarching view of A Serious Man, a film that's well worth watching, especially with that kind of understanding. Um, I think that, that that is, you can't necessarily make a Coen Brothers show without that. Although it's interesting because Malvo in season one was more of the uh, the kind of no country for old men, just sort of this, malevolent force this sort of right. predator that kind of descended on this area uh and he was not going to be and his stopped. hair wasn't much better than javier bardem no it really wasn't <laughs> like it, it, it wasn't <laughs> quite anton sugar levels but it wasn't great well, how are you doing friendo and there, that like and <laughs> is that like joey Triviani <laughs> means anton sugar sure it was that's how i do uh but yeah uh that was uh that was antonio sugar yes yeah, all right wow. I'll, cu- I'll cut the friends music now yeah so okay good 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 uh but yeah no i mean you can't if you're doing this sort of uh coen brothers tv show which touches on all of their their works uh i think that you know that's certainly welcomed and i think that that i think it's a good observation in that article uh for sure i i, I agree i don't think we're getting uh we're getting ufos per se on or getting aliens on fargo this isn't going to end like alf how does that end again? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to know. I'm, the, I'm working, there's an I'm, ice age and they all die. No, I'm working my way. Uh, well, let's let's keep let's keep your eye on the clock. We're going to have to start wrapping up yes. fairly soon. We can't leave without talking about Ed and Peggy. Antonio, did you have a hot take on Peggy? I feel like you had a hot take on Peggy. I know you can relate to Peggy with the toilet paper. Thing. Yes, I yeah, love stealing. Let's talk about the this toilet. is your move. This is what you do. If you guys you guys don't know this, but Post Show Recaps has an office, and Antonio is always leaving the office with all the toilet paper in his car. Yeah, if, if you, you only know about that, the toilet paper, I'm doing pretty well. It leaves us so, in a really awkward position during the daytime. I leave yeah, a little it really bit. hand towels, day poops. You're ready. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah no, I, I, I do have a hot take on Peggy, uh, and maybe not as hot of a take as Peggy's boss does. Uh, but I do think that there's yeah. something. Yeah, Helen Dunbar coming hard at Peggy. She's coming yeah. hard at Peggy, yeah. and going to be her BP. Time. So here's here's something I wondered: uh, What was Peggy doing at the Waffle Hut that night? Was she just well, she driving was, by? She was driving by, right? I mean, we talked about this a little bit, this question of, like, could she have been driving away from some illicit encounter? Was she that's- driving to meet the judge? Right. Who knows? Well, I don't know. I mean, we didn't see her turning into the Waffle Hut. We didn't see anything like that. No, but I well, mean, I- the question, I guess, is go ahead, Jeremiah. No, I was going to say the, the that reason of the question: Why is she meeting with the judge? I mean, there's that would you're right though, but I, I kind of I always got the feeling that she was just on her way home. Well, so let's just look at this. In the first episode, there is a, there is a pointed discussion between her and Ed about making a baby and how they haven't necessarily been trying. And no, oh, was that last weekend that we didn't try? I I don't remember. They don't seem to have a very uh, a relationship that's full of physical intimacy. Let's say uh, right. she is yes. she's putting off vibes that have her boss. Uh, really into her, uh, which is a female-female kind of thing. Uh, Is it Mm -hmm. possible that she was in a similar scenario or relationship with that judge? 
I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. that it, it's open for speculation here. And I think the thing is, I think there may be more going on with Peggy than we as an audience really know right now. Uh, if you'll, if you'll think about it this way, when we first meet Peggy proper in the first episode, that's when Ed comes home and she's just a normal housewife. She's made hamburger helper and tater tots. She's working on her, you know, getting her career going, blah, 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 blah. But she's been lying to him the whole time. And right. she's got a dead body in the, or not what she thinks is dead in the garage. I don't know what her plan was for that, but that's what's going on. And, you know, if the guy doesn't wake up, we never find out about that theoretically uh same thing goes for the toilet paper she's stolen it not told anybody probably told ed that they gave it to her whatever uh and then the person who knows that it was stolen shows up and she's just like oh you're you're a dirty one or you're a little you like the trouble you're a troublemaker whatever and she gets turned on by it it seems and she's yeah. been invited to this conference, this LifeSpring seminar uh, that that uh, her boss wants to take her to. And LifeSpring was an actual thing. Uh, it was more than an actual thing. It was a lot like Scientology in that some people thought it was a cult. There were lawsuits about its practices and whether or not they were abuse or uh, whether they took advantage of people. It was seemingly disbanded in the late 80s, very popular around that time, uh, and it was – so I guess the question is, like, is she sort of susceptible to this sort of thing? Is she a manipulator? What are her true hopes and dreams? I don't really know, but there's a there's a very interesting character uh, inside uh, Peggy, and I think Kristen Dunst is playing it really perfectly right now, which is very surface because we're really only seeing her in her interactions with other people. There is a great character waiting to burst out there. Yes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's been she's been very thinly sketched out so far. We're really seeing her through other people's eyes. Probably the most honest moments we get with her are when she's in front of the mirror and she's you know kind of dolling herself up. And there's no dialogue there, and there's no one to judge her in those moments. But I think with her boss, those conversations like "You're a bad girl, aren't you?" and you know with Ed, we're seeing her through other people's sets of eyes, and I am very pumped to finally know a little bit more about Peggy because whether or not she was out doing something naughty that night when she ran through uh, the Waffle Hut and and ran over Rye or, you know, whether or not that was an innocent thing, she still has this, this quality about her where she's bringing a body home and just kind of leaving it or she's bringing her boss home and letting her pee in the bathroom when it's so easy for her to open up a cabinet and see that all of the toilet paper is indeed there. Yep. There is just something strange about her, odd even. And I think that it's going to be really fun to see that unravel. And I think that that's something that's really fun about the process with Fargo, with what Noah Hawley does. You know, he turns in basically an overarching story to, to FX at the start of a season. He says, I know this is how it starts. I know this is what happens in the middle. I know that this is how it ends. And because of that, he can really pace out an arc. And it doesn't matter yeah. that Kirsten Dunst hasn't done a ton yet because she might do a whole lot starting next week, the week after that. Yep. Who knows? But he's got ideas. He's got that arc in mind, and it's mm-hmm. already bubbling. We're not quite at the full boil, but we're getting close, and it's really fun. It's really fun to watch that. I agree. Yeah, we're definitely at the beginning of this arc. I totally agree with everything you said. And I, I get this feeling. I mean, part of it might be I – I think there's times where I feel like she's definitely someone who's – you know, not completely uh, playing with the full deck all the time. She she's not as bright as you would think, but then she's also, you know, with that, like you said, having that odd feel to her that there's something going on in there. And I think I, and we mentioned it last week. I think you guys said this was that she to me definitely feels like the the Lester and I Nargar uh, Lester of this season. I really feel that there's just going to be much more to her. And I I I'm going to put it down right now. She will definitely kill 
this lady that she works with. Uh, you think that's that? Yeah, I think she's. I think that woman's a goner. Quick trip and to I the meat pay- grinder. Yeah, I think she's going to get her way to the meat grinder as well. I might be Find crazy or dark, but I thought it could happen this episode. <laughs> I thought so too. Yeah. What if instead of the meat grinder, she just like mummifies her with all the toilet paper? <laughs> oh, thank you. She wow. Her uh, lethal, I got news for you. That does not paper. kill anyone. Well, how do you know? It doesn't matter. Well, Why do you think right. I take the toilet paper from the office? You've tried. You've tried. Yeah. I have. I feel like that'd be a great TV scene of just like <laughs> methodically, slowly wrapping someone in toilet paper and the person being, no! There has to be and just no, nothing ever happened. There has to be an amount of toilet paper that you could wrap someone in that they couldn't get free from, right? <laughs> oh my god! Oh. <laughs> it sounds like well, you've got like a record, a world record that we want to set here. That sounds like something the MythBusters should do. Yeah. Yes, death by toilet you know? paper doesn't sound fun. It doesn't, sound good. <laughs> doesn't sound fun. What do we think of Ed in this episode? Ed, who's obviously really tormented by what went down. We see him having flashes of killing Rye. We see him really sitting with the idea for a lot of it and being very quiet with the idea, being very introspective of what had happened the day before. And we see him looking into the fire pit. We see him taking his clothes off, burning his clothes. We see him grinding the guy. Ed is really a lost cause right now. Yeah, you were talking about the the story uh, arcs of Peggy. I think for poor Ed, I think we're getting that character that you see so many times that you know you kind of feel sorry for him because he's caught up in all this stuff. I don't think this this is this is obviously not what he wanted to have happen. He's really already regretting it, and I think the poor guy. This this is just going to really end very ugly for him because uh, it's just it's just not looking good at all. And I feel I feel bad for him. He had to do all the dirty work in this episode, man. He had to clean up all the blood. He had to chop up all the the guy in the pieces and and send him down the meat grinder like Richie Apollo Pearl did from uh, Sopranos. I mean, you know, this poor guy is getting stuck with all the. The nasty stuff, and I, I just get a feeling that I, I couldn't help but kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. Did you guys feel sorry for him a little bit? I feel very sorry for Ed uh, because the the thing is, what Peggy used to kind of ultimately play him uh, and tear at his heartstrings was like, well, if you want all those things, if you want this great life where we have kids and you have the butcher shop and I have the salon, like you have to cover this up. We have to do this, and so mm-hmm. I really think he's doing this in pursuit of something that he wants that's good uh not something that's bad uh and he killed a man he killed a man and for all we know he served in vietnam maybe not a big deal but i don't get the i don't get the impression that that's the case i get the impression that he's very shaken up by everything uh that great scene of him standing in front of the fire in his socks and underwear uh yeah, and doing a really good josh wiggler impression <laughs> is that what you do you stand in front of fires <laughs> in your socks my, and underwear it's my, wow. my before, my, it's my before bedtime ritual oh my gosh that that robe been, and throw it all in the fire oh. that might have been off there, Josh. Yeah. Gosh, just there. like just <laughs> shaking off dead skin and throwing yeah. it in there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. You got to start um, over. Fresh day. The next fresh day, like a chrysalis, you emerge. Yeah, um, pretty much. Yeah, so hey. that's great. Uh, and I, I thought great work by Jesse Plemons in that scene. I think that all of that. I'm oh, not yeah. going to say anything about his eyes, but all of it was playing out in his face. <laughs> Why really. bad bad eye acting? <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Just I mean, a, obviously great great body acting, but bad bad eye acting. Beefy. His eyes were a little beefy in that scene. Beefy eyes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, just just great overall work by Jesse Plemons there for sure. This is a, he's a, I mean, this guy. Look at this guy. He goes from Friday Night Lights to Breaking Bad to uh, Fargo. This is a pretty nice trifecta for this guy. He's got a good thing going on. Yeah, really I just does. saw I saw him in uh, Bridge of Spies over the weekend. It was yeah, great, he was great in that too. Bridge of Pies. 
small, small role, role but you know he did, he did it fine nice. yeah uh, but you know, Black Mass, and he was. Oh yeah, he was. Oh great yeah, Black he's Mass. great in Black Mass. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, what I'm blanking. What's the Philip Seymour Hoffman Scientology movie? Oh, the Master. The Master. The yeah. Master. Oh yeah, he's yep. very good in that. So yeah, Jesse Plemons, he's rocking it, and this this can only this can only help. Yep. This can only yep. only mm-hmm. help things along. Good uh, things are heading to his direction. I can definitely tell. Yeah, and in the form of a UFO, hopefully with some clothes <laughs> on the way. Uh, anything else from this episode, Antonio? Any other hot takes that you had? No, I mean, I think it's I think it's appropriate to say Jeremiah kind of talked about this a little bit, but that that ending was from a kind of a uh, rock opera version of the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, famous radio broadcast that Orson Welles uh, and I, th- I believe it was the Campbell Players, but uh, it was Orson Welles' kind of radio broadcast. Of course, that famously may have caused a little bit of people to believe that it was real uh, and not that it was just a radio broadcast it was presented in such a way radio was new enough that there was a little bit of that kind of craziness going on and that's obviously a very much of a time and place that that happened uh and i think that it's evocative of that for sure to play this at the end and the way the camera swoops up i think that that's a really really a cool thing that happened there uh and i i think that the article that we talked about really does summarize that overall how that may all be connected and i thought that that's really good um, and I, th- I thought that was a really interesting way to end the episode after that very tense scene. Uh, I'm I'm loving it. I also really liked one other thing in this episode that we didn't hit, which is that when Peggy is walking into the garage, when uh, she and her boss are in the house and she's looking for Ed, uh, the song Kansas City is playing on the radio. Uh, I'm going to Kansas City. I'm going to Kansas City playing on the radio. And, yeah, and, by Fat Stomel, right? And, yeah, it's very loud. So it's kind of like, hmm. There's not that's not just there on accident like that is very clearly like, are they going to get connected because of what happened with Rye? Are people going to put all this together? Is there going to be a witness somehow that I mean, that knows? I don't know. I I like that. Lou is probably not feeling great about that weird, awkward encounter where Ed did not answer the phone at the end of that scene. Uh, right, but I don't know that he's thinking automatically, oh, well, then that guy was definitely grinding human meat. Agree completely. <laughs> agree completely. I don't think he's going to go Especially because he knows the guy. Like, he knows he's on a name, first name basis with him. But I think that if we know anything about Molly, she could tell when Lester was a little bit off in his answers, and that led her to not stop looking into it. And I think that mm-hmm. this is, this is going to put something with Ed a little bit on Lou's radar. He's not going to forget that scene. Yeah, and I think definitely once once Lou and them find out there is more going on, I'm sure he's going to think back to this particular uh, moment that was with him. Because it was definitely – there was enough there. He knew something was odd going on, but he didn't quite know how you know what to put his finger on it. That's for sure. So These Solversons, they're good, good judges of character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good judges of character, generally speaking. And I think that we could see that go. I mean, Tiffany on, on our, on our post show recaps page, had asked what we think about the delve into the supernatural. And I think that, you know, we, we talked about how that article fits, but I also like the idea that there isn't supernatural in a lot of it, that it's just good police work. Uh, and it's natural kind of family drama that you've seen play out over the ages, uh, throughout all the works of history. Uh, and I think that we're also seeing that, uh, in this series. And I think that that's really good. I think it's really good as well. Jeremiah, any parting thoughts on this episode? No, I don't really have much. To, we've already pretty much talked about everything. I guess I'll go ahead and mention there was a few other songs from the episode. Uh, Reunion by Bobby Gentry was in it. Uh, One Hour Ahead of the Posse was in it by Burl Ives. We had, of course, uh, you mentioned Antonio going to Kansas Fat Domino, and then the last one uh, was a song. The, of the Friends soul. theme song by the theme people who sing- do the yes. Friends theme da, 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 da. song. No, the uh, Song of the Soul by Chris. 
Chris Williamson. Sorry, so just any excuse to put this in there. That Pearl Ives song was so weird. I don't know why that, like, what was going on there. That was the weird, like, song? Daddy, can I hump, can I hump, can I hump, or whatever. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was an odd song. So weird. But I guess, if you know, it... It kind of fits the show, I suppose. And uh, should we also mention this was uh, Noah's directorial de- debut in this episode? Is there Noah anything Holly, this guy yeah? can't do? No, this guy's—he's the man. I, like I guess him. we'll find out if he can if he can do an X Men TV show. This was announced in between podcasts that uh, Marvel and Fox and FX are teaming up to do a few X Men TV shows. It's called Ooh. Legion. It's an obscure character in the Marvel universe, and Noah Hawley is going to be doing a TV show about that guy. So let's see if he can do that. Let's see if he can do nice. the superhero. Thing. Oh I'm in. Gosh. Anything he's doing, I'm in. How about you guys? I'm in. We'll find out. We'll find out. We'll see. Uh, all right, that's going to do it for us on the Fargo podcast here on Pusher Recaps. Uh, hashtag suggestions. Anybody? I, I've got it. I don't know. Chekhov's digits. I don't know. What do Chekhov's we got? Chekhov's digits. Like well, I acting. I acting. We can do I acting. Do you want the I better acting. I or E Y E? I think E Y E. But if you want to go I acting, if you want to suggest some apps, you know, maybe someone yeah. from Apple is looking. <laughs> you never know. Probably not, but it's possible. It's possible. I think uh, EYE makes the most sense, though. Yeah, so give us some eye acting. Hashtag eye acting. Send it to Antonio. He's at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. Jeremiah's at J Panhorse. I'm at Round Howard. We will be friends with you next week as we talk about episode three of season two of Fargo. Having a good time with this show. See you later. Bye. Okay, then. All right. Okay. Oh, jeez. Oh,